A warning, this episode contains mention of domestic abuse. The new film Babylon is all about silent era old Hollywood, new technology, the intoxication of being famous, and whether love can really conquer all. Babylon is the latest from writer-director Damien Chazelle, the sometimes divisive creator. Here he doubles down on some of the same nostalgia about film that got Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone dancing in La La Land. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about Babylon on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with me and Stephen is our co-host Aisha Harris. Hey, Aisha. Hello, Linda and Stephen. And also joining us is the host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast and a reporter for NPR's Culture Desk, Andrew Limbong. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back. Yo, what's up? What's up? Thanks for having me. I think this one is going to be a corker of an episode, I think. So (laughs) just to lay the foundation, Babylon is written and directed by Damien Chazelle, who got a lot of awards attention for both Whiplash and La La Land. He won the Oscar for Best Director for the latter of those. Set in Hollywood in the 1920s, Babylon follows a young upstart named Manny, played by Diego Calva, who is desperate to get into the movie business any way he can. While working at a fancy industry party, he meets Nellie, an aspiring actress, played by Margot Robbie, who is convinced she's destined to be a star. He also crosses paths with Jack, played by Brad Pitt, an established and oh-so-gently aging actor who doesn't yet see the threat that talkies are about to represent to his career. Over a period of years, we follow these three characters as well as others, played by people like Gene Smart, Giovanna Depo, and a very rundown Toby Maguire. There are a lot of things that have drawn attention to this movie. Chazelle is one. He's been somewhat polarizing, at least since La La Land. The fact that the film is more than three hours long is another. The fact that it is only one of several movies this year that triple, quadruple, quintuples down on movies that are about how great movies are is another. But another potential issue for this movie that we should mention is that it seems uh, tailor-made for awards season, but we are not yet sure how its fate will be affected by press coverage around Brad Pitt. In October, the New York Times reported on allegations made by Pitt's ex-wife, Angelina Jolie, regarding an incident she says took place on a private plane in 2016 in which Pitt was physically abusive to both her and their children. His reps deny that. But Brad Pitt has always aimed for a kind of amiable and game image as a movie star. He's a veteran of awards season. He's also become a major producer of prestigious films beyond the ones he stars in. Just this year, he's a producer on both Women Talking and She Said, which have gotten recognition of their own. You know, sometimes abuse allegations like the ones from Jolie have affected careers and award trajectories. Often they haven't. It's not clear how that's going to play out in this case for either him or the movie. But with all that said, we do want to dive in because unlike this movie, this show is not three hours long. Um, (laughs) Andrew, tell me how you felt about Babylon. I unfortunately loved it, I think is is what I've been telling people. (laughs) Why do you say that? Why do you say that? So like you said, you know, there's a lot of movies about like how great movies are. And I and I usually can't stand them. I'm doing like a like a rude hand gesture right now about like how I feel about what they do. But from jump, 
I had this stupid grin on my face up until like the very end that was like just full of like glee and wonder. And I felt like a dumb kid at like a dumb carnival, just like enjoying the spectacle in spite of me not wanting to. (laughs) It's a stupid movie, right? Like (laughs) the score sounds sad when you're supposed to be sad. It sounds happy when you're supposed to be happy, right? It sounds like, oh, jazzy, look at all the party and the cocaine going on when you're supposed to feel energetic. Maybe it, it just like I had like it triggered like dumb Neanderthal instinct when you know when that opening scene that opening party rather right when everybody's like throwing down and the, you know there's like nudity everywhere and drugs and all this debauchery. It felt like exciting to me. It felt like I was watching like Fast and the Furious, the two cars like dragging the the stupid safe across like the city. It had that like sort of energy to it. Hmm. Yeah, I I can understand that. I can understand that. Stephen, how about you? It's interesting because I feel like Andrew went into this movie hoping to hate it and loved it. And I went into this movie hoping to love it. And uh, (laughs) I, I mean, hate is probably a strong word, but I found this movie deeply exhausting and really weirdly shaped. And this film's relationship to the movie industry and this kind of weird commentary on and reveling in how incredibly debauched everything is kind of rang hollow to me. I never emotionally plugged into this movie at all. I never really connected to any of these characters. And God, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this film's length. It's three hours and eight minutes long. And at one point, I finally, like, I got to peek at my phone. They're bringing this thing in for a landing. And I (laughs) peek at my phone, and there's 90 minutes left. (laughs) And, you know, everybody's just walking this high wire and could just die at any time from their behavior. And yet there's a slackness to the pace of this film that is really weird. There are scenes that should take 15 seconds that take six minutes Mm. because it's this incredibly ambitious epic, man. (laughs) And and not necessarily because the story, such as it is, dictates that. And so I appreciate this film's audacity. I think there's kind of an end of an era quality to this film of like, how do movies like this get made moving forward? Because you see a lot of money on the screen for a movie that I'm not sure has a ton of mass appeal. I don't know how they're going to make their money back. Some of that stuff is kind of interesting and exciting. And and you you feel like, man, I'm I'm glad somebody got to take a swing this big. But for me, it was a big swing and a miss. Hmm, Very interesting. All right, Aisha, how about you? (sighs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) this movie is like someone decided to take the spirit of Baz Luhrmann's worst tendencies, (laughs) suck it inside of Damien Chazelle. And then that body decided, I'm going to make Singing in the Rain, but make it three hours long. (laughs) I say this because this movie owes a great deal to Singing in the Rain. There are moments and scenes that are either directly referencing Singing in the Rain, or if you know the movie, you know this is a lift on that movie. Talking about scenes that are too long, there's one scene, like in Singing in the Rain, where the talkie's upon us, and the Margot Robbie character, who is an aspiring actress, or, or is an aspiring star, she wants to be a big star, she has to do the scene where she enters the room, and this is their first time trying to film her talkie. And this is just like the scene where uh, Lena Lamont and Don Lockwood are trying to film that scene. The thing is, in Singing in the Rain, it lasts, I don't know, maybe four minutes, five minutes tops. This scene goes on for what felt like half an hour. It was probably (laughs) only maybe 
10, 15 minutes, but it was still very long. And they go through take after take after take after take after take. And in the scene, people start at like 75 and they get to 150. So yeah. much of this movie is people yelling and screaming. And I just felt as though there were a lot of Kramers in the room and it was just too much <laughs> all the time. And I felt like I was being yelled at. Kramers. <laughs> it is like every scene, almost every scene. Yeah, you're not wrong. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And, and so, and I also just feel like after this, after La La Land, after Whiplash, I just wonder like, what does Damien Chazelle really think about art? at all like does he understand it on a level that is beyond the most like surface level i really did not like this movie not one moment of it i wanted to because when it's a three-hour movie i want to go into it hoping that it's going to be good and i found this so tedious and i wish that i could have enjoyed it half as much as andrew did <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't like it either i think part of what happened for me is you know you mentioned aisha that scene where margot robbie's character is shooting the the talkie the thing i liked about that scene was that i appreciated its specificity and it was actually about the making of a talkie I sort of liked the technique of it because it was more interesting to me than the generalized, let's talk about the glamour of old Hollywood and strivers and, you know, everybody has a dream. That stuff is all so fuzzy to me that I can't sit through it for three hours. But my bigger problem with this, I think, is I don't think that this script reflects an understanding of which parts of the story are interesting. Mm -hmm. For example, there is a story about a trumpet player named uh, Sidney Palmer, who's played by Giovanna Depo. And it, it is hard given Chazelle's past experiences writing about jazz, <laughs> not to see his effort to tell the story of a black trumpet player, you know, to see that as a little bit of a corrective mm -hmm. for some of the past work that he's done about white guys and jazz. But I think that that story in a three-hour movie is so short-changed mm -hmm. that it winds up feeling somewhat rote to me. There are a couple of actually moving moments about trade-offs mm -hmm. in terms of what you're willing to do and sacrifice to make certain kinds of things come true for yourself. But instead of that, we get a lot of this story of this Brad Pitt character, which to me was just 100% telegraphed at every moment, never surprised me at all. I also have to mention, I, I feel an obligation to mention that it really stood out to me how much Chazelle, particularly in that early party scene, but throughout the movie, uses fat people, especially fat men, as a way to signal the kind of um, this isn't glamorous, it's actually gross. Grotesque, mm -hmm. yeah. That seems to be his visual language for a person who is engaged in this kind of ugly excess. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe it's just because I've had my dread of watching the whale has been kind of on my heart a little bit, but it really stood out to me. And it just made me feel like the whole thing was not made with a ton of care or thought. Yeah, Stephen talked a little bit about this problem of false endings, but you get into that part late in the game, and it's around the part where Tobey Maguire shows up. And I just got to the point where I was like, what are we doing? This is no longer <laughs> about old Hollywood. There's a whole other thing going on that I never signed up for that I don't feel like we're supposed to be here for. And by that point, I just felt like I'm so lost. Andrew, why are we all wrong? 
I think he hates Hollywood and I think he hates movies. I don't know. Like, that's the vibe I got. Like, I got from, you know, watching Whiplash. I think, like, jazz sucks and, like, liking music is stupid, right? It was the lesson I took away from Whiplash. (laughs) Same thing with La La Land. I think, like, I felt like La La Land, like, the Ryan Gosling character was, like, supposed to be kind of dumb for not listening to John Legend. I don't know. First Man, like, the moons. I don't know. I don't remember much about First Man. I mean, Neil Armstrong likes jazz in that movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I just, like came to the opposite conclusion you know i don't see this as like a like a love letter to cinema as much as it like is that like it's not really worth it like because like people die in this movie in the process of like making movies right and i never get the sense from this movie from chazelle that chazelle's like this is what it takes to be great in hollywood maybe just because like you know i don't love la and like i'm joining in on it's very la bash (laughs) you know like big Uh day of the locust vibe you know it's like la is stupid all these people are fake and whack and i was like yeah i agree i agree damien (laughs) (laughs) if you're looking for a through line with at least whiplash la la land in this film damien chazelle is very interested in the price of art Mm -hmm. the sacrifices that people make in order to to have great art and i i do think this movie is revealing and reveling at the same time in so much ugliness. And I think all of that is kind of in service of this idea that what you think of as the golden age of Hollywood is actually this grubby, grasping, pathetic, lawless place. But then it gets to this really sentimental ending. Uh, uh-huh. Now, see, this is very interesting. Without spoiling it, I think it's fair to say, because they've it's been written about in the press a fair amount, is that there is kind of this big montage that kind of pays tribute to the movies. And itself. (laughs) And I think without talking, you know, too much about the circumstances, it's a very flashy, very kind of attention-getting. It's meant to be the thing that you talk about when you leave the movie and that you write about when you review the movie. It's also like the most underwhelming montage I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I thought so too. I thought so too. But, you know, Stephen read that as, as sentimental and sort of, I read it the same way in the moment, right? But it's interesting hearing Andrew say that because it is also possible, I suppose, to read that as a tribute not to how great the movies are, but to how intoxicating the movies mm-hmm. are and to to how all-encompassing they are, regardless of whether you think that's a good thing. And so if you read Damien Chazelle as hating the movies, which is a really interesting reading of this, I think. Mm-hmm. Then you, and that's not the kind of interesting that means <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a, it legitimately, I think, is a really interesting way to read this movie because if you read the movie that way, then that montage is much more about just demonstrating sheer power and not necessarily anything laudatory. I, I do think that's a fair reading of it, but I also think that he hates movies and so it comes out that way, at least to me as a cynic. But I don't think he thinks of himself as someone who hates movies because mm-hmm. I still do read that final montage because it's I don't think this is point, but it's like directly connected to singing in the rain mm-hmm. that like there is this sentimental bent to it. Like there's so much in between a elephant crapping all over a bunch of people <laughs> and a very long puke seat. There's so much yeah. gross stuff happening in oh, this movie. Oh gosh, I forgot about Amongst that. Amongst all of the body humor humor and quotes and like the gross stuff that's happening. I don't think his like ambitions, Damien Chazelle's ambitions are connecting with what actually what actually shows up on the screen. Like it shows up as pure misunderstanding and just disdain for what he's doing. But I think what he thinks he's doing is that he's 
uncovering some some like harsh truths, but also at the end of the day, loving what all of those harsh things have created on the screen. Like it's like sacrifice. Yeah. I think Aisha and I kind of had the same reaction, which was like, mostly this made me want to go home and watch Singing in the Rain. <laughs> but it has a very, it has a very weird relationship to this very iconic movie. And I'm not sure he finds the right way be inspired by and and mention and pay tribute to without just seeming like you're borrowing. It's very odd. I think very odd is right. I mean, one of my initial takeaways from this film, I think that Linda, you and I talked about as we were walking out of the theater was like, man, this guy just underlines everything he's trying to say 10 times. I think that's why Andrew liked it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yet at the same time, we're sitting here like, well, what was his intention? Which is just interesting to me because the experience of watching this film, it just feels so thuddingly deliberate. And yet it doesn't cohere into enough that we're sitting here even able to agree on what this movie is about and where it's coming from. And I just think that's interesting. He underlines so much that you can't read the page. Yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> if there's one thing nice I will say about it is that I do admire the technical prowess. Oh, yeah. And there are certain scenes where I was like, oh, that must have been fun to shoot. <laughs> oh, the choreography <laughs> that goes into the kinetic action set pieces, you know, the the filming yeah. of a of an early silent epic, the giant party at the beginning. I mean, there are all these really gorgeously choreographed set pieces, but they're But it's very tedious for me to sit through. (laughs) It's almost like five episodes of a TV show that you watch back to back to back to back to back. (laughs) Well, I'll just put it this way. We have been talking about this movie for quite a while, and we have not even mentioned Eric Roberts and the snake. (laughs) So I'm going to leave it there and say... We want you to tell us what you think about Babylon. As you can tell, we have a variety of feelings. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what's making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor Bed Bath & Beyond. With everything for bed, bath, kitchen, dining, cleaning, and more. A curated selection of top brands includes Shark, Ninja, Caraway, Casper, and many more, and always at incredible prices. During the holidays, shopping is easy when you visit in-store or take advantage of same-day delivery, curbside pickup, and buy-now-pay-later options at bedbathandbeyond.com. So welcome the holidays with Bed Bath & Beyond. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. With wines inspired by NPR, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, What's Making Us Happy This Week. Andrew Limbong, what is making you happy this week? So I listened to this podcast called the Blammo. It's a it's a fashion podcast that um, is hosted by this guy named Jeremy Kirkland. There was a recent episode um, that featured Avery Truffleman. Uh, she she does the Articles of Interest podcast um, that just dropped a whole season about like prep and Ivy. But on this appearance, they started talking about like fashion and clothes. And kind of how like stupid and dumb it is to enjoy all these things. Something I've been thinking a lot about too. Um, and so, yeah, it's been interesting to see other people kind of struggle with caring about something that is important. I'm not. I'm not out here trying to say that like shirts aren't important because I think a lot about different kinds of shirts all the time. But how to think about that stuff in context with. The greater world happening around you is always interesting to me. Uh, so the podcast is called Blamo, the Avery Truffleman episode. Well, thank you very much, Andrew Limbong, Stephen Thompson. What is making you happy this week? 
Well, my partner and I have been belatedly, very belatedly, started digging into the treasure trove of RuPaul's Drag Race. We're falling in love uh, with new people, getting irritated with new people, kind of diving into this whole new wing of reality TV competition. And along the way, to kind of get better perspective on the show, I finally sat down for the first time to watch Jenny Livingston's 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning, which is, of course, you know, a massive cultural touchstone influenced Madonna's Vogue, influenced Pose, uh, a, a show I really love. It obviously uh, had a great impact on Drag Race. And it's a really touching and sad and fascinating film. It's kind of exploring the 80s New York City drag balls and kind of the characters who occupy this world. And some, a lot of the sadness comes from the fate of so many of the people in this movie. Only a very small handful of people featured in this film are, are still alive. And that, that gives this film an even additional layer of sadness. But there's also just such joy and quotability. I will have Pepper LaBeja living in my heart. <laughs> from from here on out. If you're loving RuPaul's Drag Race, if you're really uh, celebrating drag culture, as I know our colleague Glenn Weldon has been way ahead of me on this, <laughs> talking about this on the show for years and years and years, this film is really worth catching up on. If you have somehow missed it, you can still, at least for the moment, find it on HBO Max and other streaming services. And it's great. Paris is Burning, 1990. Where have I been for the last 32 years? <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Aisha Harris, what is making you happy this week? Well, I enjoy Christmas music a lot, and I'm always on the lookout for new Christmas music to enjoy. And, it, you know, it's hard out there. There's not a lot of new new Christmas music being made. Um, I prefer the ones that are a little bit on the sillier or fun and not so staid, like Starbucks coffee shop version of <laughs> holiday albums. And so... Luckily for us, Cheryl Lee Ralph of Abbott Elementary and many, many other things before that has blessed us <laughs> with a with a holiday album called Slay. And Slay She Does. Um, <laughs> this album, it's dealing with actually kind of in the same vein as RuPaul's Drag Race. It's given us a little bit of some, some house music. It's giving us a little grown and sexy. It's giving us some ballroom culture. There are some original songs. There's also, you know, this holiday standards like Little Drummer Boy, which I've never liked as a song. It's just not an interesting song. But she takes Little Drummer Boy. She makes it interesting. And I want to play a little little section of that where the song gets happening, as it were. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 a little campy. This whole album's a little campy. She has an interlude called I Love the Holidays, where it's just Shirley Ralph's talking and saying, I love the holidays. Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah too. I love them all. Like, it's just really fun. And it's great background music. If you're looking for something a little, like, just to put on while you're finishing up your wrapping or making your holiday cookies or whatever, it's fun. It's Shirley Ralph. She's joy. <laughs> So I recommend you check out Slay by Cheryl Lee Ralph. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It absolutely is true. All right. Thank you very much, Aisha Harris. Uh, what is making me happy this week? Well, I wasn't really enthusiastic about a lot of the stuff that I was watching and, and listening to and reading, and I was kind of bummed. I was starting to think, like, maybe I've lost my capacity to really fall in love with anything. 
fortunately, our brilliant producer, Jessica Reedy, was there for me and told me that this was the moment when I needed to get into K-dramas, which she's been telling me (laughs) off and on for a while. And other people have told me off and on for a while. Jessica recommended to me, and for some of you out there, you're like, just say the name of it already. (laughs) Jessica recommended to me Crash Landing on You, which is a series that you can find on Netflix. There are 16 episodes. They're roughly like an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half-ish each I watched 16 of them in about three plus days, which (laughs) tells you how much this got me. It is part rom-com. It's a story of a woman, a South Korean businesswoman who goes paragliding and glides into North Korea and is discovered by a North Korean soldier. He agrees to hide her and they like each other. It also then eventually has elements of like epic romance. It has elements of like politics and military and shootouts and her family is this rich family. So it has like a little bit of succession family scheming going on. There are a bunch of really wonderful friendships in it. He has a little company of guys that work with him who are hugely charming. Plus, there's a little group of women who live in this village who are like military wives. You get to know them. I fell in love with it so hard. I adored it. I cried a bunch of times. I kept texting Jessica at different times about things I was crying about. <laughs> it's also really like funny in places. It's one of the best kind of mashups of lots of different genres and lots of different tones and emotions that I have experienced. And look, I am painfully agonizingly late getting on this entire thing, let alone this series, which was a gigantic phenomenon um, in a number of different countries. But it made me so happy. And I felt so relieved to react so enthusiastically to something that I think is both hugely pleasurable and really well done. It's a whole thing. Uh, Crash Landing on You, available on Netflix. If you're anything like me, you will not do anything else for like three days. Uh, the next free time you have will be completely devoted to this. So that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links to what we recommended, plus some additional recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Andrew Limbong, Aisha Harris, Stephen Thompson, thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Candice Lim and edited by Mike Katzif. Our podcast coordinator is Brendan Crump, and our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>